Beginning in First uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was manifest and we have seen it and testified it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and we heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete this is the message we have heard from uh, from him and proclaim to you that god is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness we lie and we don't practice the truth But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, If you were with us for the class, you're going to notice a lot of um, language that seems similar. And that's partly because most people assume that John the Apostle, we've been studying through the Gospel of John, that John is the same John that's writing this letter. But if you notice, he never, no one actually comes out and says like, it is I, John, writing this, right? Not like a lot of the letters that we have in the new testament in fact there's only two letters that are a part of our bible that don't have an author named another one is hebrews um and so and i say that like first second and third john all are kind of lumped together like them and hebrews in fact the only indication that we have within the text for like a title for whoever's writing this is in second john and third john when the one writing is referred to as the elder um some people use that like internal evidence to say that maybe there was a an elder, right, that maybe also was named John, but that wasn't the apostle. And certainly that's possible. I don't think it's the most probable explanation for the authorship of this book. I think the traditional view that John the apostle is the most probable view. In fact, there's a lot of things that we could spend a lot of time talking about because I spent a lot of time this week reading a lot of it um, about like some of the reasoning for that. But just know, I'll give you like little bi- little bites that are kind of the most important bits of information boiled down into bullet form. Um, most of the evidence historically seems to point to this being John. In fact, there are several authors of historical texts that are from like 180 AD, 215 AD. Um, 220 AD, 253 AD, and then it continues to ascend. That reference, 1 John, like they quote it and specifically attribute it to John the Apostle. And while that's not concrete, that's we're talking 30, 40 years potentially after John the Apostle was alive that people were citing this text saying that's John the Apostle. So that seems pretty weighty. Um, I'm no historian. I'm not someone who is an expert in that field. But as far as I understand looking in, 
that's about as strong as evidence as you get historically uh, for those sorts of things. Um, in fact, there's less certainty that works like uh, the Odyssey are true than the texts of the Bible. That we are less certain of the origins of those and who wrote them and if they're legitimate or not than, say, First John and John being the author. And so there's a lot of evidence to say that John the Apostle is the one speaking in this text. And even though he doesn't come out and say, it's me, John, hey, listen to me, I'm writing this letter to you, that's probably who this is. And so, you know, think about that. When you read the first paragraph, doesn't that make uh, a very powerful message to start off by saying, that which was from the beginning, which sounds a lot like John 1, doesn't it? Which we have seen. John the Apostle definitely would have seen that, right? We've heard. We've seen it with our eyes. We've looked upon it. We've touched it with our hands, right? Concerning what? The word of life. And that's really what all of us are interested in, isn't it? Um, if you're a Christian, uh, if you're a believer in God and you've, you've submitted to, to all his teachings in your life, then you know the value of the word of life. If you're here today and you're like a seeker and maybe you're not a Christian, but you're trying to sort through that, that's because you're starting to see the value of the word of life. Something in you is telling you, hey, like, I need life. I need truth, right? Well, John, and I'm just going to reference this as John now, John the Apostle. John is saying that thing that we all need, that we all are coming to a realization of the value of, he's seen it, he's touched it, he's been with it, right? And certainly if you read the Gospel of John, you understand why that is, because... It dwelt in flesh. It was manifest among us. In fact, that's what he says here in this. And he says, we've seen it. Not only did he like experience it, that's not where John's like experience with the word of life ended. In fact, he spent the rest of his life, historically speaking, testifying to that thing that he felt and touched and experienced. And that's what he says in verse two. He's testified to it and he proclaims it to you, the eternal life. But who's the you? Did you notice, like, not only do we not in this text know specifically who the author is, though with a little bit of legwork throughout history, we've known probably that it's John the Apostle. We don't actually, like, have a specific audience named. Um, unlike, say, other letters where we'll see something like the Apostle Pond to... The church in Ephesus or something like that. That doesn't happen here. He just says you, 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 you. In fact, later in the book, and Lord willing, if I stick with my plans and we're all around in weeks and months prior, we'll talk about some of the other language that he uses. But he says things like little children. He says things like fathers. So whoever the you is, the writer knew them. He had relationships with them. In fact, so much so that he didn't even name himself in the letter, right? Maybe he handed it to them personally. Maybe they would have known who was writing to them, right? He didn't have to say who it was. In fact, he didn't have to tell them who they were. He says, hey, little children, you know, from the elder. 
fathers, because I know there are fathers here. So this is a letter of intimacy. Of uh, All the internal evidence tells us that this is a relational letter more than like a business practice or something like that. Like, okay, I know I'm supposed to write to you. And I know you got things wrong, and so here's the checklist. This is an appeal to a family from someone they knew. Um, and so most likely John's writing, and, and I think there is something to be said about the specific audience. And again, I'm not going to dive into all this, but just so maybe you'll know something that may or may not ever be useful in your life. But it seems probable that John would have actually been writing to um, Christians in Ephesus. Um, that's historically all the evidence even archaeologically suggests that John actually lived out like the end of his life was kind of in Ephesus. And so, actually, if you were to go to Turkey today, which is where Ephesus is, there's actually a site in the city of Ephesus that is claiming to be the burial place of John. You can actually go see it. You can take a tour of it. Whether or not it's legitimate, no one knows 100%, but it's probable that that is the city and minimally, maybe even the exact spot that he was buried. Um, So anyway, it's interesting to think about because... On one hand, what happens, and this is for me personally, and I imagine you prob- some of you probably share in this, when you read things like this that seem vague in general, it loses some of its power because I can't always envision like the specifics of what's said. Like For instance, I'll give you an example of this. Um, when in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes to them and says to them there are some among you who have followed the gods of their bellies right and he talks about how like he's come to tears thinking about those who are walking in destruction because they've followed the god of their belly their fleshly lusts that resonates with me because i can learn about philippi and i can know the city to some extent and i can see like even in acts his interaction with philippi and i can connect the dots and say man he knew those people he loved those people this was the problem they had or even in corinthians right there is one among you who has his father's wife right how how can you have fellowship with him you're not even to eat with such a one like that right well that Resonates. It has teeth. It seems very specific. And so I know the application. I know why he said it. I can understand where he's going for it. But when I read something like First John, I'm like, who's writing this? Who's he talking to? Like, and so a lot of the teaching for me ends up becoming like almost like a general platitude. It's like, oh, you know, fellowship with God, love each other, which Christians should have fellowship with God. And we should love all people, right? We should be known for that. And that's what John talks about. But being able to dig a little deeper and say, all right, this was probably John with people he lived among. That was maybe Ephesus. And he had a relationship with them and they were fathers and they were like little children to him. And he was like the elder. Means that we can see some specificity in some of the things that he says and that we don't have to just chalk it up to being lazy in general in some of the teaching that we see, which is my temptation. I just say, oh, this is nice, fun stuff to think about. It meant something for a specific group of people to deal with the problems they were facing, trying to be faithful to Jesus. And while I can't pin down exactly who it is, I think it's a helpful reminder as we dive through this that from an apostle, 
someone who has seen with his eyes, who's looked at and touched the word of life that's eternal. This is what he's saying to people that he loves about remaining faithful. That's much more specific. It's much more meaningful than some of the ways that I'm, I tend to be lazy with some of the things I see in here and say, well, this is just general roses are red kind of like be a Christian and things do this and you'll be okay. This is life. And John had put his hands on life and he had seen it. And when he was encouraging other people to, to cling to it, this is what he said. Um, so let's look continuing kind of through this text. I, I've talked a little bit about the probable authorship. I've talked a little bit about the probable audience. It seems like Ephesus. There's a lot of evidence for that. You can talk to me about it later if you want. Um, but a lot of this is pointing to John, pointing to Ephesus, right? Okay, great. That's not going to change our lives probably. But it does fill out some of this, right? Can you imagine John, the only apostle that wasn't like killed for his belief in Jesus? The only one that saw an old age that ended in just like death by natural cause? <laughs> Saying things like this? being Maybe at the time of this writing, being the only apostle that could still say this? Right? Saying, I saw, I laid my hands on it. I looked at it, right? Eternal life concerning the word of life, and it was manifest, and we testify to it. He's seen all the people that he spent all that time with die for this. And he's still willing to say, I testify to this. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with who? With us. And he says specifically, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So what does John want for the people that he's writing to, the people that he knows and they know him? He wants fellowship. And I think some of it might be selfish. You know, he's thinking, I love these people. I want them to have fellowship with me. But he also says, because we have fellowship with Jesus Christ and the Father. Right? This isn't just like, hey, I want to like hang out, watch football, eat a meal together do whatever, enjoy your company. This is, I want to enjoy your company as I enjoy a relationship with God. And as I enjoy God, we can enjoy each other. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Uh, I think I already knew this, but Blake brought it to my attention the other day that he really likes First John. And he was offering some like tips and helpful things about the book of John that he remembers that he likes about it. One of the things that he brought to my attention was that the book of John has a lot of these purpose statements. We are writing for this, or I am writing for this, but the problem, and I'm going to use that with quotes. It's not really a problem, but one of the quirks of John is he has several of those. When you read, like you expect kind of a purpose statement to be the thing that everything revolves around, but John has like five of them. Um, and he has five if you don't count chapter two when he says, little children, I'm writing to you for this. Fathers, I'm writing to you to this. Like if you skip that section, there's still five of them. Um, but it's still important because look at what he says in verse four. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. When you guys hear that phrase, when you think to yourself, 
about joy and it being completed, what does that mean? I'm not, uh, I don't pretend to have like special insight into verse four that you guys don't have. Um, But I do know that them understanding that the writer had a very real, tangible experience and relationship with God and Jesus somehow provided them or could provide them what they needed for their joy to be complete. Which tells me that my joy can't be complete right? without, as he says in this text, fellowship with God the Father and Jesus the Son and even with others who have experienced that same. And I don't know about all the intricacies of how God's designed that to work out. I can see some of the reasoning in Scripture. I, through experience, can understand some of it. But what John wants us to understand is that joy can be had, and it can be had in the fullest, when we have fellowship with people who've experienced the word of life, and we have relationship with the word of life. Like that is joy in its most complete and full sense. Now, I think it's worth noting that in verse 4, what John says is uh, sort of conditional. And what I mean by that is like it's not implicit. It's not like necessitated. He says, I, I'm writing so that our joy may be complete, which means I think for some of us it might not be. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons for that possibility existing, even for believers. Like if I've experienced the word of life, I can still somehow maybe not have a complete joy. I don't think that's what God wants, and that's certainly not what the writer wants. But it's possible. It seems like it's a possibility. And in the text, he never dives into like what could create that specifically. But can't you imagine some of the things that would do that considering what gives complete joy? Fellowship with God and fellowship with people who are in fellowship with God. If that's what gives complete joy, then why wouldn't I have complete joy? Well, if some part of that is broken, maybe I'm a believer that doesn't spend time around other people. Who are, who's, who are believers. Like, I don't do that. Well, maybe that part of joy is not existent in my life. So my joy is not complete. I haven't, like, taken in the complete joy that God has provided in fellowship. Or maybe it's the other way. Like, maybe I spend a lot of time with people who know God and love God. But I myself am not really loving and knowing God then I have some, you know, I have like an aspect of joy, but it's not complete at all, right? John wants these people to know joy, for it to be complete in them, that they have fellowship with him as he has fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's important for us to see. There's a lot of texts in the Bible that give us like this teaching and command form, right? Like meet on the first day of the week. Sing hymns, care for each other, right? Provide for the need. I mean, like, those are all like more like black and white versions of what John is saying. John is saying, do that 
But he's saying, make your joy complete. Have fellowship with me and have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And so uh, if you know John's writings at all, that's like how he writes, isn't it? Um, He writes like that. Um, Peter or Paul. Peter's going to reference a lot of the Old Testament. If you read 1st and 2nd Peter, he's going to draw imagery and connections with the Old Testament to make his claim that Jesus is what we need and how to be a Christian. And Paul's going to reason maybe like he does on Mars Hill through like artists and poems and like he's the great apologist, right? And like he reasons that way. Well, John, he reasons through fellowship and light and love. That's how he reasons. And we're going to see that in this text. In fact, look at verse 5. So verse 4 is sort of our purpose statement, is that our joy may be complete. Verse 5 um, fills this out. The message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Um, this morning we talked a lot about that in our Bible class, right? And assuming this is John the Apostle, we, it makes a lot of sense that he would zero in on conversations that Jesus even had about being the light of the world. John 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 12. I am the light of the world. Right? And if that's true, can you see how fellowship with what is light and where there is no darkness could be a, a joyful thing? Can you see how that would like round out joy it would complete it to have fellowship with people who are trying to be like that and then to be with the one who is that that would be a complete experience that's a joyful experience and that's what john's saying he's like i want that for you because the reality is that god is light there is no darkness in him at all but that's not all he says this isn't like all right john wrote his letter the end is at verse five he's like five verses long that's it it actually affects me in practical ways. For me to have fellowship with people who want to be light and for me to have fellowship with light changes how I think and how I act in very practical ways. Now, John, like I mentioned before, doesn't seem to write in command form. He's, I mean, he does that some, but primarily he's going to talk about this figurative language of light and love and fellowship. And what he says in verse 6 is this. If we say we have fellowship with him, right? God is light. If we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we've lied and we don't practice what's true. We don't practice the truth. It sounds a lot like, don't be a hypocrite. That's how I would say it, right? But John says God is light. And if we're going to have fellowship with light, we can't walk in darkness. Wasn't that one of the big issues that Jesus faced when he dealt with the religious leaders like the Pharisees? That they were hypocrites. Um, And yet, John apparently is not dealing with people that are Pharisees. I mean, it seems like he's dealing with people who have fellowship with God, who are Christians. But he still needs to tell them, don't be a hypocrite. This is not a Pharisee problem. It's just an us problem. It's a people problem. We want to we look good and do our thing, right? We want to feel good, like, oh, I feel better than maybe the person next to me and still be just like them, right? We trick ourselves that way. We're, we're, 
We're sly like that. We, di- we dilute what's true so that we can maybe feel better, we can know what's right, and then still do what we're going to do. Right? And John's saying, for God, it's as clear as night and day. Right? He's light. And you can say you're light all day long, but if you look dark, God's going to know your darkness. Right? And people may be convinced that you, you sure do talk a lot about light and you sound like you are light. And so maybe you're light. But at the end of the day, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And what does he know you're doing if you're walking in darkness? You're lying. There's no trickery with God. There's no confusion with him. He knows. And he knows you're not practicing what's true. And you know what? Verse 4 is not true then. Your joy isn't complete. Continuing through this in verse 7, conversely, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we do have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's a lot to say about this. Um, And I'm not even sure I'm like studied enough or smart enough to be able to pull everything out of this. But what I'm seeing in this is obviously the converse, right? If I do actually walk in the light, then I do have real fellowship, right? And if I'm thinking in terms of verse 4, which apparently is the, the purpose statement of kind of this section, then I'm headed towards a complete joy. I'm walking in light as God is light, and I can actually have fellowship with people who are in the light. But do you notice the back end of that statement? And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. He didn't talk about this when he talked about walking in darkness, but the implication is that if you're in darkness, what's not happening? You're not being cleansed from your sin. Uh, This is a a sort of a a kind of, I don't know if revelatory is the right word, but for me, this has been a newer understanding. And I don't know why. I think it's a failure of my own because I don't think it's the lack of good people around me telling me this. I just think I never connected the dots or paid attention to it. There is a cleansing that every believer goes through. Um, And specifically, Scripture teaches us there's kind of this big initial, like, you're with God, you've been cleansed in baptism. Like That's the imagery. Romans 6 talks all about that. You've gone from dead to life, right? But this text seems to say like there's this continual cleansing. Like as we walk with God and we live in the light, God is continuing to just like cleanse us all the time, right? And I don't know why that was like something that never clicked with me until more recently because of exactly this text actually was this text that made that click for me because I had no misunderstanding about how often I needed to repent. Like, man, I make a lot of mistakes. I do a lot of dumb stuff and I'm always having to like, not only ask for God's forgiveness, but oftentimes I'm having to ask you guys for forgiveness because you see the dumb things I do. Right? So it makes a lot of sense that when I have fellowship with God, he's constantly cleansing me. Like he's taken away the sins that I have through the blood of his son. And additionally, if we say we have no sin, right? So if we're walking in darkness, right? And yet we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This is a real temptation. 
Um, and I think there's two forms of this temptation comes in primarily. I think one is just ignorance. Like you don't really understand that you're, you have a problem. And there are people like that. Like that's, that's a condition that I think in a lot of ways all of us start in. Right? Like we all start ignorant and hopefully we move towards truth and we're cleansed of our sin by obeying God. There are some people who deny having sin due to ignorance. But that doesn't change the fact that the truth's not in them. Yet, hopefully, conditionally, hopefully there's a yet that they will come to that. But some of us ignore the truth. Some of us deny that there's sin when it's staring us in the face. It's been presented. It's obvious. It's even evidential. Like we can see it. And yet we will not humble ourselves to acknowledge that we've done something wrong. That there's a standard beyond myself and I've breached it. Right? In moments like that, it's certainly true that we've deceived ourselves because God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. James that we read talks about God having no variation or shadow due to changing. Every good gift is from him, the father of lights. Okay? God is not doing things to like confuse us about this. It's we deceive ourselves. And what he's saying about this is, look, you've got sin. And if you walk with me, I'm willing to keep cleansing you all the time. But if you... Deceive yourself and walk in darkness. There's no cleansing for you. There's no blood to remove that sin. And the truth is not in you. That's, I mean, to me, understanding scripture, there's no joy in being like that. And certainly I think the point of verse 4 is like your joy would not be anywhere near complete if you're like that. Um, Look at verse 9 though. This is kind of where our introduction will stop. This is kind of an introduction lesson to John 1, or to John, 1 John, and we're ending up going through chapter 1. But in verse 9, if, but if, right, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The oddity in this verse to me is he's just. I get how he's faithful. I would get that if it said gracious or merciful. It makes less sense for me to say that God is just and forgiving us when we confess. And not because it's not true. It's just to me in my brain, like, I'm like, eh, it seems like the just thing to do would be to punish me. But, but to God, right, because of what Jesus has done, certainly... We need to keep that in the back of our minds because of the cross and the punishment Jesus endured. He can look at us and see someone who's in darkness. But if he sees someone who's in darkness where there is no truth, that is saying, whoa, I have sin. And Jesus is the light of this world. And John touched him and heard him and understood him. And now he's giving me testimony that he's the word of life. And I, th- I think, wow, okay, so I'm in darkness. Okay, well, I've got sin. What do I need to do about that? Well, you need to repent of it. You need to be baptized and be cleansed, and you need to walk in fellowship with God. And I do that stuff. God sees that the only just thing for him to do to that person is to actually forgive them. He's faithful and just 
I love that idea that like God is right in forgiving someone who does that. Like, and it's because he created a system, right? He, he had a plan that would make it right for him to do that. It's not because it's inherently right. He had to like, I'm going to use this accommodatively. He had to jump through a lot of hoops to create a situation where it was right for someone who repented to be met with forgiveness. Okay? But God has done that. He planned before the foundations of the earth, as Ephesians tells us, that his son would be able to redeem us. God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, right? If we confess them, if we say we do have sin, right? And then verse 10, but if we say we've not sinned, as we talked about earlier, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If there's, I think there's a lot of fundamental things about God, but maybe one of the most foundational things about God is to understand God truly is to know that he never lies about anything ever. He would be he would self-defeat. He would implode, so to speak, if he ever were to lie. He would not be God. He would not be anything that we need if he ever told one single lie. And yet, if I make a claim, whether through ignorance or through pride, that I have no sin for God to forgive, that I don't need him to do that. That's what we're saying about God. Like, we're just blow him up because he's telling a lie. It's not real. Right? Well, we know how that works out. God's not a liar. If we're honest with ourselves and we study the word, we see that very clearly. He's never wrong. He never deceives. We deceive ourselves as this text has revealed to us. And by saying that you have no sin that God needs to to help you with, that you need to be forgiven of, is to make God just that, a liar. And ultimately, um, the word doesn't dwell in us. Why does that matter? I think there's uh, what what John is saying here in verse 4 is that our joy needs to be made complete. And I think chapter 1 primarily is like rotating around that. Like if our joy is going to be made complete, there's some things we need to make sure that we know and that we do. And when there's things conversely, right, that we need to make sure that we don't do, right? Deceiving ourselves and not for uh, repenting of sin. But ultimately in, in verse 10, as he introduced his writing, the thing that he touched and that he saw and that he testifies to is the word of life. And yet, in verse 10, at the end of this chapter, there is a way that we can keep that word of life out of us. And that's by making God a liar and not acknowledging that we need help, that we've sinned and we need forgiveness. And so John wants, whoever this mystery audience is, maybe Ephesus, but he wants us, reading this letter, If John were alive today, he would say, this is my testimony to you. Like, I don't think it would be any different. Maybe he'd use some, you know, different language. But this would be it. And he would say to us, if you want your joy to be complete, do all this stuff. Make sure you know this. You walk in the light. You be with God. You fellowship with other people. But ultimately in verse 10, you need the word in you. 
the word of life that I, John, have held on to. I've seen it. And I'm testifying to you, you need that. But if you don't acknowledge the sin in your life, you'll never have that word of life. You'll never have the truth in you. You'll never walk in the light. You'll never have your joy made complete. And so that's my appeal, hopefully, is the same as John's appeal to you. If you see that you have sin in your life and you haven't dealt with that, you haven't repented, you haven't been baptized, you're not walking in the light, you're not fellowshipping with believers and with God, the truth's not in you. The word of life's not in you. And it's not because I want to say that. It's just that's what God says, and that's what John's testifying to. So I'd encourage you this morning to be honest about your situation because you notice the only person that is deceived in this whole thing is you. Ultimately, if you're not honest about this, the only thing that you have to lose is just affecting you. You're only hurting yourself. And so be honest this morning. If you have sin, if you have a need, Talk to me, come forward while we're singing, whatever you feel comfortable doing, whatever you see is necessary um, to start moving in the right direction. For those of you who look at yourselves and you say, hey, I honestly, genuinely think I'm walking in the light, then John wants you to know then your joy should be complete. And he doesn't hinge it on any circumstances or income levels or city you live in. He just says, if you have fellowship, with those who have fellowship with God and you have fellowship with the Father and the Son, then you should have a complete joy. So be comforted in that this morning. If there's anyone that has any needs, this is your time while we're dancing.